Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 24th, 2021, the F School, F Softball, F Cheer, F Everything edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. I am joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello. And by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning and Face the Nation and a to-be-named-later new project, which doesn't have a name, and therefore it cannot be named. Hello, John Dickerson. Yeah, the John Dickerson experience. I like that. That would be great. John Dickerson's <laughs> excellent adventure. The John Dickerson experience, it would involve like carrying a guitar around, like having a little notebook that you're scribbling in all the time, looking soulful. That's right. It would be great. Petting the dog. I, I think you've got three quarters <laughs> of the pitch right there. That show would be great. It would be so popular. This week, we'll talk about what is the future of work in the post-pandemic age and will offices survive? Then, Tucker Carlson, how did he become the Vox of a rageful populi? Ugh, and are we stuck with him forever? Then, two Supreme Court cases empower students, in one case, NCAA athletes, and in another case, a high school student belly aching online about cheer. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. What is happening to American workers? It is wild. They are abandoning retail jobs in huge numbers. Those who avoid, who can avoid coming back to an office are avoiding coming back to an office. They're seeking higher wages everywhere. And perhaps coincidentally, we'll talk about this, we're also undergoing the fastest labor productivity gains in decades as employers are adding labor-saving technology that helped them get through the pandemic and now helping is helping them get through the labor shortage. And that is creating productivity, increases in productivity. So, Emily, is it a good or a bad time to be an American worker? I think it's kind of a good time. I mean, this is so surprising to me. I was so worried about the aftershocks of the pandemic and how it was going to affect people, especially lower income people. And it actually seems like there's been this jolt to both employers and employees. And now, obviously, I'm like wildly generalizing because it's so hard to say anything about the national economy. But there are sectors with traditionally low paid work that was kind of crappy. And people just don't seem to be settling for it to the same degree. And so the employers, to some extent, are starting to offer perks, offer to pay more. There are a lot more teenagers working this summer in particular than there have been before. And I think that workers are feeling like they can be more picky about the conditions of their work, about how they want to work, how often. And then, of course, there's the whole fascinating topic of remote work, especially in white collar jobs, and how much that is going to be just a much bigger presence in people's lives than it has been up until now. One of the interesting points that's been made here is that it has effectively been government policy in the United States to push Americans into lower wage jobs. We don't say that. But the effect of making it hard to join a union, of not raising minimum wage, of allowing large numbers of low-wage immigrants is to create a situation where there is always a push to make it hard to get welfare, for people to take the jobs that are available. And those jobs can be set at wages that are not livable. And there's an amazing, there are amazing statistics about the percentage of Americans who are in extremely low-wage jobs, and it's much, much higher than the percentage of Japanese or the percentage of Germans or French who are in low-wage jobs, because we have made that government policy. And all of a sudden, because of the increase in unemployment insurance, because of the kind of unsettlement of the pandemic, and because of these 
job shortages, that policy has been turned on its head. And there are a lot of people who seem to want that to be our policy. They want it to be like, oh, employers should be able to hire whoever they want at whatever wages they want to pay. A lot of people like our corporate overlords and the politicians who take big donations from them and represent their interests. Right. And but in fact, the policy should be and this has been a policy that has been I mean, it's been more concentrated with Republicans and Democrats, but it's really been pretty universal. I mean, Democrats have been kind of on the free trade side of this to in the and the immigration side of this to a certain extent, too. But the policy should definitely be like we want Americans to get the best jobs at the highest wage that they can that they want. Not that we want Americans all working every job that is possibly available. It's that you want the jobs to be at the highest wage possible. And it's interesting that we've had this kind of reset where suddenly there's whole categories of jobs that people are unwilling to take. And it's it's exciting. I mean, or John, if people are are not working and they're turning down jobs, are they lazy, no good nicks? Which well, is what that's what some would say. Yeah, we're in a we're in a wrestling match over what work means and what the dignity of work means. And there is this moment we talked about this in the early stages of the pandemic, whether it would create a policy driven reapp- reappraisal of policy. And you know, at the time, the argument was: Are people too busy trying to survive to have the reappraisal? I think we're having the reappraisal now, and it's happening in two arenas. And the question is, which one is the more effective in the in the public policy arena? As you suggested, David, there are a lot of Republican governors who believe that there are lazy, no good who are sticking with their unemployment checks and not going out to seek work. And I mean, there's some anecdote that suggests that's the case. But there's also data that suggests there are in the jobs where this is supposedly affecting things. There are sufficient people applying for those jobs as there are openings. There are areas, Washington Post has a great piece, although I think it may have been an AP piece, where it talked about the the areas of the economy, sawmills, for example, where there are actual shortages. So you have two openings, but only one possible prospective employee per opening. But in retail and other places, you have sufficient people looking for jobs, sufficient to the openings, you just have more of this churn happening. And what's interesting to me is, the churn that's happening is redefining perhaps labor, and that's happening in the economy and potentially redefining the way we think about work. But then you have this public policy effort on the part of Joe Biden to redefine what it means. Sticking, for example, child care and elder care in infrastructure argues essentially that those barriers to economic activity, particularly for women, of having to take care of kids and having to take care of your elderly parents, are as significant a barrier to economic activity for those people as bad roads or bad bridges, which is a redefinition of work. Really interesting. Looks like it's not going to work in terms of the infrastructure bill for right now. But it was an attempt to redefine work. The sawmill case is really interesting because the sawmill case is is all about a lot of different things. It's like there are not enough sawmills. uh, There are not enough workers. But it's also that this is a really hard, dangerous job and people are not paid that well. So the wages should the wages have gone up quite a bit in sawmills. They've gone up 10% in the last year. They should probably go up a lot higher and you'd get more people willing to work in them because they'd be better paid. And what's interesting to me is there are all these categories of work that people slightly, they don't never say it, but they slightly look down on and they, you know, they look side eye at and are like, well, you work at a Starbucks or whatever. And all work is dignified work. Essentially, unless you're scamming old people out of their life savings, that is not dignified. That's work. not so great. Maybe that's not work, really. That's a crime. But any any category of work that we think of as being work, it is it is filled with dignity, and people should be paid 
they shouldn't be paid according to sort of the status of that work. They should be paid to how hard it is and how valuable it is and how productive it is. And it's good to finally see that that side of it, the value of what it is to the laborer rather than what it is to the corporation being taken into account more than it has been. Well, also, I mean, to go back to your important point about how the government has been basically like shoving people into low paid work, there's an irony to me in seeing politicians in states like Missouri and Arkansas complain that wages are rising in these rural communities where they have things like sawmills. Like, this is the kind of work that the traditional American, you know, male work that we don't have enough of in rural communities and has been blamed for all kinds of things from, like, the depletion of the population in those areas to the opioid crisis. So the idea that now these governors are saying, oh, we don't want the extra federal unemployment benefits because we don't think that wages should rise just seems kind of backwards. You know, as we redefine work, our conversation about inflation is uh, maybe needs to change because inflation is created by these increased wages as companies decide to pass along the increased wages they're having to pay their workers on to the consumers. And the the sensitivity to inflation as a political matter, I mean, obviously, people who live on a fixed budget don't like inflation, but there's so much political sensitivity to the increase in prices and how they affect people on the spending end, on the consumer end, but we don't talk as much about the inputs that are the result of increased wages that create a better life for those people on the wage earning end. Right. Right. The inflation versus unemployment teeter-totter that we've been on, it's been so heavily weighted towards keep inflation down and let unemployment go where it will because inflation is such a threat. But truly, we should have more inflation than we've had. That would be better for the country. It would be worse for people on fixed incomes. It would be worse for certain kinds of people who are investors, but it would be better for more people. Switching to the, this remote work question. So, Emily, do you think the dispersal of the American white-collar workforce to home-based work is good or bad? It depends on the nature of the work that you do. I think there are a lot of jobs where people, it's better both for the employer and for the employee to have some regular contact. It's not going to be true for everybody, but there's some amount of like generative stuff that happens when people are together. I know that like there's some research suggesting that that is like way overvalued and, and maybe that's the case more generally speaking. I just I'm sort of attached to it from my own experience. All right. Here is a topic that makes me kind of queasy. Probably you too, listeners, knowing GabFest listener habits. Tucker Carlson and his influence on American life, which is a lot more than I wish it was. Tucker has eroded trust in vaccines and masking. He has said really terrible things about immigrants and would-be immigrants and their effect on the United States. He has kind of tacitly promoted a, a white nationalist or even white supremacist ideas about what the United States should be. He's caused waves of harassment to descend on various journalists. Why, John, has he become the tribune of this really mean-spirited politics that demonizes and derides and flirts with white supremacy? Well, because I think he's good at it. I mean, he's very good at pushing these buttons, and he's very good at certain kinds of argumentation that are, in a negative partisanship world, highly beneficial and useful. And I think Donald Trump's rise is both a symbol of that and also proved it was proof of concept. And I think he's he's very talented at playing in this uh, 
in this area and the ways in the sleights of hand he uses in the way he, he appeals to the emotion and the the logical leaps he does i think are incredibly powerful and he has um an audience that is thrilled by being fed ever more outrages about the people that they find outrageous. Yeah. I mean, I guess I know Tucker some, he and I were, I wouldn't say we were ever been friends. We were certainly friendly back in when the daily caller started. He and I did a series of online debates Uh, and Emily, I think, you know, him a bit, John, I assume you know him. I can't remember whether I've ever met him, which I, he is both. I mean, like he's genuinely really funny and really smart. He's really funny, really smart, really quick. To me, he's this the human embodiment of something we've talked about a lot, which is one of the sinister phenomena of modern life, which is this, it's a joke. Oh, what I'm saying is a joke. but And if you don't take it as a joke, you're a smug and pompous fool. But then you squeeze the joke and squeeze the joke and squeeze the joke until, A, it's not funny, and B, it, then people start to take, then it is, ser- you, you mean it as a joke, so you can get away with a joke, but you also are deadly serious about it, which is a lot of what sort of the 4chan, 8chan, 16chan, 32chan world has been like. And Tucker kind of does this in television form really, really well. So Ben Smith, uh, the media columnist of the New York Times, wrote a piece this week, which is part of why we're talking about this, in which he was explaining that Tucker is a really helpful source for a lot of journalists and that that's part of why he, in Ben's view at least, gets a kind of free ride sometimes or just that he's shaping a lot of the Trump coverage sometimes with these kind of insider anecdotes or criticisms of Trump world. And I think what strikes me, and I I, I don't really know Tucker, is that he was of good, ma- funny really sharp magazine journalists like he did more sophisticated work than he's doing now on television and he was good at it and he seems like he should know so much better than the way he's performing on television and so you know whereas with someone like Sean Hannity you think like well this is just the shtick he's been doing forever with Tucker it's clear that he's capable of actual real work and not just like feeding red meat to the right wing. And I think that is tantalizing for other journalists, this notion of like, oh, you're but you're part of our tribe. Oh, but wait, you're doing something totally different. And gee, you could run for president in 2024 and be the kind of demagogic successor to to Donald Trump. Well, 20,000 people read his uh, story in the Weekly Standard about whether there was an abortion crisis of people aborting Down syndrome babies back in 1995 and 4.3 million people watch him every night now. So you can certainly understand that he might think that what he's doing now is more important than what he was doing then. But he could still have ink stained fingers, David, just like the rest of us. Um, How can you possibly trade away from that? No, of course you're right. And and I think that was, I don't know if he is the highest rated show in the history of cable television or has had the highest rated show in the history, but one of the two is true. So this is not just a person. I mean, what is the opposite of what I described as his audience enjoying the outrage of those they find already outrageous, which he he serves up. He also plays a seriously important role in the liberal world that Rush Limbaugh used to play, which is here's Tucker's latest outrage. And that's another unhealthy part of the general addiction to outrage and at the physical level, addiction to outrage that's become a part of our political hobbyists. 
So what do we think about that? I find that very confusing. Like, I remember years ago at Slate, you know, I was very resistant to writing the piece that was launched by the what felt like a kind of Fox News provocation. And, you know, now, like, Tucker makes up some conspiracy theory about, what, the FBI being behind January 6th or some latest right. baloney. And then you see, like, a serious article in the New York Times or the Washington Post. No, the FBI is not behind this conspiracy theory. And that kind of fact-checking and debunking is something that the mainstream media takes much more seriously as part of its, like, obligation um, right now. And I'm just never sure what I think about it. Well, we've talked about this before. There are studies that show that what that ends up doing is that the fact check ends up for some people legitimizing the original crazy claim. Right. right. Yeah. Or you just can't remember whether it's like even just repeating it just now. I was like, oh, God, I've now like imprinted it on myself and other people. Well, and this is a part of a public conversation that he's only one major player in. But now you have politicians who full time say things they know not to be true in order to get fact checked so that they can a have promotion of the underlying thing that they've said that is untrue because it hurts somebody and then b they can take fake umbrage at being fact checked by an organization that they have all along claimed is out to get them none of this is on the level and all of it is in bad faith and what's so damaging and so cynical and so dangerous to the human experiment is that we should be bending over backwards to give the benefit of the doubt to people, to make sure that there's not misunderstanding in what we say, to run the traps before saying something that we know will appeal so much to emotion that it will cause people to to jump out of their skin, not because we're responsible for people's bad reactions, they should think for themselves. But in a busy, attention-shredded world, we just happen to know that that's the way people pay. That's why those peekaboo headlines that used to be in Slate and the and the BS provocative stuff that used to be in there, I always was hated so much because you're faking people out you're tricking them and you know you're doing it and you're using your art to trick them and the argument that ultimately people fall back on is the one that slate editors used to and that newt gingrich used to which is well to get people to learn you have to shock them first i don't think we have that second beat people don't say oh i've been shocked now let me have a calm discussion and thoughtful examination of this idea you're putting forward that ain't the way it works and we know it ain't the way it works sorry that was a wonderful riff, John. Yeah, that was a good rant. I liked that rant. Woo! That was great. Watch let's just world. Let's just leave this topic with the question, Emily, could Tucker become an elected official? Could he actually successfully run for president? His audience is $4 million a night. He doesn't have the profile Trump did. He is, of course, known in Trump in the conservative circles, and they've all heard of him, and he's, he's probably the most popular media figure. But he doesn't have this worldwide reputation that Trump did, or, and certainly a reputation as a successful business person. But is he is he a legitimate, reasonable candidate or not? Yes. I mean, legitimate. Yes, he is a candidate who could win. I mean, I think I was reading somewhere that um, TV personalities are like the most underrated political candidates as a general matter, that like one smart thing to do is go find them and recruit them to run for office for either uh, the Democratic or the Republican Party, depending on your political leanings. And Tucker seems like the sort of giant -er example of that. What are the examples besides Donald Trump? 
I don't know, just that apparently TV personalities have name recognition and high approval ratings. And so you can capitalize on that. I'm sure there are other examples of like local and state office and we're just not thinking of them. One thing that we should support your previous assertion, David, to those who are not immediately in agreement with it about the idea of I'm, you know, this is all a big joke is that that's what Fox News has claimed in court that basically Carlson shouldn't be on the hook for anything he says because it's obviously hyperbole and everybody would take it in the hyperbolic manner in which it's presented. There's a second part of that, which is the sort of I'm just asking questions you know, which is like, is bleach really a refreshing midsummer afternoon drink? Just asking questions. You know, it's um, anyway, so that but that's I mean, that's been asserted in court by his employer. So it's I think that's an important part of assessing that argument David was making. Bridget, our researcher points out Al Franken and Ronald Reagan. As two other and our examples. listeners will write in with many more with, examples with many more and make us smarter than we actually are. Slate Plus members. You get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts, and even bonus episodes of certain Slate podcasts like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. And you get to support us and the work that we do here. It's only a dollar for your first month of Slate Plus membership. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. And we have a topic today. It's going to be fun. It's a Baz special. What's something that you loved as a child that has gotten better? It's gotten better than it was when you were a child. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It is a good week to have been a student at the Supreme Court, at least a student who's on a team or trying to get on a team. So Emily, can you quickly brief us on the two big decisions this week involving students? Yeah. So the Supreme Court finally took a case about students' rights to free speech when they are off campus, and in particular when they're writing something on social media. And a student known by her initials, BL, won a case in which she had challenged getting suspended from her cheerleading team for a year because she wrote... She's Brandy Levy. Oh, Brandy Levy. Yeah. And what what's the actual quote again? The fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. Okay. A Snapchat with her middle finger raised. <laughs> yeah, so she won. And it was an eight to one decision by Justice Stephen Breyer. A big accomplishment at the end of this term. Hmm. 
Just noting that for Justice Breyer, uh, the dissenter was Clarence Thomas. Also known as his penultimate term. (laughs) And what's important about this case was that the court laid down, I think, what should be obvious principles for schools, principles like legal principles, not principal leaders, which is that students have to have greater free speech rights when they're off campus than on. And there's this funny phrase that Breyer used that the schools are nurseries of democracy. And so they should be helping to instill in their students the value of, you know, free speech. Even if you disagree with it, you're supposed to defend it. I thought the word nurseries was a little much like training grounds might have been nicer. High school students are not in nursery school. But I think that general principle is important. This case doesn't go very far. This was a really in a lot of ways, like a set of easy facts, right? It didn't involve an attack on a school, a teacher or a school administrator. It wasn't bullying. It was just like a kid sounding off in a way that was critical of her team. And yeah, she used the word fuck. And other than that, like there was really nothing wrong with it. And so it didn't rise to the level of a standard the court has used before, which is that in order to be disciplined, a student's speech has to substantially disrupt the workings of a school or like impede on someone else's rights. There was just nothing like that here. And so there are a lot of unanswered questions going forward. And let's talk about this case and then the NCAA case later. Uh, Emily, I I found myself strangely ambivalent about this case. Agreed that, of course, this is this didn't rise to the level of disruption and certainly would have voted with the majority. But in a social media age, the off camp the off campus on campus distinction is really weird and not it's not tenable that this was what she said was to a snapchat group that included huge numbers of her classmates and it involved something having to do with school it didn't this was not a case that involved her saying something racist or sexist or homophobic but you can imagine that like people do do that and there are those if you do that and it's not directed at another student or, and it's not directly about a school activity. Could that be conceived as being disruptive to the school? The ba- Just the boundaries of school are so porous and the boundaries of speech are so porous in an age of, of social media that it's, it's really hard to... Th- like, yes, this was a pretty easy case, but I feel like there must be a billion other cases which are much harder and where the, the obligation of the school to maintain a kind of order and to not allow bullying and harassment to take place would be pretty significant and where they're going to have to be able to punish students. Well, so let's imagine, uh, and Emily, you can tell me how you would phrase this question if you were teaching in law school, but let's imagine she had put A, a teacher's name in that list, or B, a student's name. Yeah, that would be a different case. And I think the court made that clear because they talked about attacks on school officials, verbal attacks, I mean, and serious bullying and harassment as separate categories that they weren't addressing. They also said that a student's speech off campus that was political or religious in nature, that there would be a high bar for schools to be able to discipline. And so I think some of the categories you're talking about, David, could fall into that realm, right? And yes, for sure, there have been much harder cases. I mean, I remember a case, I think, It was the Ninth Circuit, so maybe California, of a kid who was wearing a T-shirt that was critical of gay people in school. And that is like a much harder situation because you can see how other students and other people at the school would feel about it. But that's also that kid's 
political speech rights. Um, and I, I think the material disruption standard is a pretty good one for in school. I disagree with you about social media. I mean, yes, it's very porous. And yes, it can have an impact in school. But if you think that everything that kids write on social media is... Um, is fodder for school discipline, first of all, you put a tremendous burden on the schools to actually have to monitor and police all that speech. I mean, that is just a mess for them. And second of all, like, then kids have no sphere of privacy, effectively. I mean, they have no sphere of free speech that isn't affected by the rules of school. No, 100%. But but it's it's different than when we were kids, when what you could say— would be limited to the group you could say it to publicly and not you couldn't say it in this massive forum that encompasses the entire world and in these groups that encompass significant portions of the school and which which are not official school groups but function as qua- para school groups and yeah i hear you i what just if, think what if she said what if she said in the snapchat group like like Fuck, you know, the black girls who made the squad or something like that. Well, that I think, yeah, right. I mean, I guess you could argue that's political in nature, but you could also imagine that have been tremendously disruptive in the school in a way that would clearly meet the standard for substantial disruption, right? I mean, there was a a speech case from school a few years ago where these girls were accusing another girl of having herpes and got disciplined. And like, I mean, come on. And it was, it was, first of all, it was seemed false and defamatory, but also it was incredibly cruel and it was a whole bunch of them. And that kind of thing, you start to feel like, okay, you can really see how that would infringe on a student's ability to be at school, that the overflow effect of the social media into school would rise to the level we're talking about. But I mean, I do want to speak up for one of Justice Breyer's key principles, which is that schools sometimes are clearly in the place of the parent, right? In loco parentis, that Latin phrase. But sometimes they're not. And some of this we have to leave to private resolution within families, even if that like create some discomfort. I mean, we just, I just don't want to see my kids' entire discipline, you know, kind of like inculcating of values to the school that they go to, especially because school attendance is basically compulsory, right? You're not choosing it exactly. Emily, can you explain the difference between this and the court's decision on bong hits for Jesus, mostly so that I get the chance to say bong hits for Jesus? Yeah, well, the court issued this decision several years ago, and so the facts of this case, I mean, I think this was a bad free speech decision. I also think now the court has kind of drawn a circle around it and said it, like, stands for its own thing. (laughs) What happened was that they were passing the Olympic torch, and the kids were, like, a couple blocks away from the school, or at least off of school grounds, and some of them, as a prank, unfurled this big banner that said, Bong Hits for Jesus, and they got disciplined. And, I mean, when you really think about that, I mean, okay, maybe material disruption, but can't anyone take a joke? And they were off of school grounds. However, the majority of the court, mostly the conservatives on the court, did not think this was okay. And so the way Justice Breyer has now categorized this decision is like, oh, you're on a school trip and you do something that, you know, makes the school and and the students look bad and it's about drugs. And so, like, that's not okay. I would not argue that this decision, which I think is called Morse versus Frederick, should have a whole lot of precedential value going forward. Let's talk just briefly about this NCA case, Emily. This was a unanimous opinion and found that the NCAA banning universities from offering kinds of educational benefits beyond scholarships. So things like 
extra tutoring and laptops, uh, com- laptops and that that ban was was not okay. And I think what is interesting about this does not open the door for NCAA athletes to be paid directly, but it, it, it does not allow that. But it does open the door to this argument being made more directly, especially when you look at the concurrent opinion that Brett Kavanaugh wrote which has a great line. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. Yeah, I loved that. That was great. Kavanaugh is a good writer. Uh, He really cares about college sports from what I've heard. So is this a big case or is this a small case? It's a big case because it indicates that, you know, the NCAA has basically been operating with some giant exception to antitrust law, which is that it sets these rules for how students are, student athletes are treated, how sports are conducted, and it's basically price fixing. And it's been the heart of its justification is now pretty much like dead. And that justification was like the reason that college sports exists and has an audience is because it's amateur. And so we can't pay anyone or provide these benefits because we have to preserve its amateur nature. And the problem with that argument, of course, is that, as Justice Gorsuch points out in his majority opinion, I mean, this is just a billion-dollar industry in which the coaches, the administrators are making million-dollar salaries, and the students are effectively getting nothing. And yes, some of them get drafted into professional sports, but some of them don't. Most of them don't. And some of them get injured along the way. And we also know that often the quality of their college education really suffers because they're spending all their time doing their sport. So I think it's really important that that kind of really false justification of the NCAA has been broken. And, you know, the question is, what are the ramifications going to be Uh, In the short term, students are going to be able to get more of these education-related benefits, clearly. Down the line, are they going to be able to bargain for much more? What happens to all the sports that don't, that are not lucrative and don't make any money, right? Like, because of Title IX, we have these rules about equal representation along gender lines. We have lots and lots of, like, teams like, you know, I don't know, gymnastics, sailing, tennis, whatever, that don't make any money. They cost a lot of money. And then to some degree, the football and basketball and hockey programs that generate revenue support those other um, sports. And like, I don't know enough about the money part, but to a huge degree, to a huge degree. Okay, so now you should start talking because I don't really know any that much about how this works, except I'm really interested to see if the whole structure changes. Well, I can give you only my the limited exposure I got when I did the piece on returning to college. Uh, during the age of the pandemic, which would have been August of 2020. And a lot of what was at issue about returning was being able to return the sporting uh, teams to the field, particularly the football teams. Totally. And they were like going to put thousands of people in the stadiums and not have any kids in the classrooms. Yeah. Right. Right. Because it brings in so much money, not just the playing of the game, but in terms of rah-rah alumni, we all love our team school and we're now going to write a check. So what I wonder is if in the argument you talked about the salary of the coaches, whether it could also be claimed that the schools benefit because of the distribution of the money to the other departments, whether that's another way in which the school benefits economically and the athletes don't. What I wonder, Emily, is if you you expect or could, could imagine, let's say, um, Someone claiming on the badminton, because you can imagine a race to the top or bottom, depending on your point of view, in terms of giving athletes, you know, it's going to be the not only the best possible laptop that they're going to get, but they might also get, you know, some other things that would be really stretching 
the definition, it would basically be like income, but they'll find a way to, to argue around it. Would a badminton team person have a legal claim to say, hey, I'm as good in my sport. Sure, we don't make as much money, but I should get the same kind of inducements. Or would that not be the kind of claim that would come to challenge this? I mean, I don't really think so, because if you if you imagine that there's no uh, effective cartel and no price fixing, then you're just at market rate value. Right. And the badminton players market rate value is significantly lower than the star football players market rate value. I mean, I guess one question is if this ends up leading us to colleges can't afford these sports anymore, like Mm. sports football and I guess basketball separate from college the way minor league baseball separates, you know, like if there's no particular reason why these sports take place in a college setting and they've been this huge cash cow. So maybe and as you said, they're really good for building, you know, alumni support and the sense of morale and like a rooting for the school within the community. You can imagine that being like if if we got to that point, that would be maybe a bad social cost. But it just seems like there are a lot of steps along the way. My two-step solution to the college athletics problem is you make the sports that are self-sufficient and which are the real drivers of, of, of alumni loyalty, which are basically our football and basketball. And maybe hockey. May, hockey places. in some places. You make them uh, professional. You pay those athletes it it functions as a minor league they remain within the college universe do they go All to school the, do they get degrees? they go to school they still go to school they get still get degrees but that's they, like part they of the now, package they can get mm-hmm. paid they get paid and everything else becomes a club sport because it is the 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 way that sports distorts college admissions the way sports distorts college is so wrong the athletic preferences that exist are so overwhelming and so much greater than the preferences for other forms of team building activity of being a good uh, a good person on a construction crew or being a good person in a in a school orchestra it's so much more valuable to have been a person who's on a sports team even for sports teams that don't fundamentally like aren't any good and don't matter the badminton team it's nice like people should be able to play yeah, the but the coach still gets their admission slots the, the coach still gets admission slots and it it tends to be particularly with the more minor sports it's affirmative action for white people for yes. the most part wealthy white people often and do. And it's just, and it takes these spots and at more elite colleges, which have now massively overinvested in sports, and it's it's just a waste. And it it means that fewer kids who are pretty good chemists or pretty good computer scientists or pretty good philosophers are getting in to schools because they're good fencers getting in. Yeah, and I find it weird not to pick on the fencers, but you're giving admissions priority to a group of people who are going to spend a significant amount of their time doing something fairly insular, right, with a small group traveling around that has nothing to do with academics. And nobody goes to watch them. It's not like a clear benefit to anyone outside that small group. I just find that very strange. You guys are so harsh about fencing. It's an incredibly Sorry, fun sport. Sorry, I know. Fencing gets picked on. It's not fair. Let's talk about squash. What about badminton? I don't think there's badminton at the uh, at the collegiate level. level. Yeah, I think there's club. maybe there's club badminton, but maybe there should be. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you're watching badminton tournament, I've watched a squash tournament. I've gone to a squash tournament. I've been to a fencing match. Never been to a badminton tournament. 
But when you're watching a badminton tournament and you're sipping on whatever cocktail you have at a badminton tournament, what are you going to talk to your fellow fans about John Dickerson? Well, I'm going to we touched on it earlier and I was about I was going to use it in our conversation about Tucker Carlson, but I decided not because it would uh, rob me of a chatter. But there is a, a new political science paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. And the, the paper, which was written by Steve, I think you pronounce his last name, Ratch. Uh, Rachi, Rachi, J.J. Van Bavel, and Sander van der Linden. Um, and it's outgroup animosity drives engagement on social media. And basically, it's a study, which is quite exhaustive, that, that shows that essentially ragging on the other side creates much more viral and engaging social media content than you know, yay, our team or positive things. So this is obvious to anybody who's been on social media, but this is a study that proves that your instincts are right, that lots and lots of things get passed around to people who like hearing bad news about the people they despise. And that that's <laughs> essentially what what fuels a lot of social media engagement. Emily, what is your chatter? Yay, my state of Connecticut. Often I am down on my state of Connecticut for many reasons. However, we you know, just... Be more po- it would be more popular, better chatter if you were like, fuck Rhode Island and Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> you would get so much more engagement. True, but I want to give credit where it's due. The state of Connecticut has become the first state in our great union, do we still call it that, to make calls and other communications from prison free for incarcerated people and their families. This is a bill from state representative Josh Elliott and state senator Martin Looney, who happens to be my state senator. And It's so important. People get so gouged when they are stuck in jail and prison and have to make phone calls and send emails through these private services that cost a ton of money. As someone who talks to people in prison and spends (laughs) the New York Times' money to do this, I see this, but who cares about that? What really matters is that often these are low-income people, their families are bearing the costs. It just sucks, the whole thing. And The idea that, you know, Connecticut is recognizing that and that these calls and uh, and emails and communications are going to be free. It's such an important lifeline. People are incarcerated. It is so beneficial to their lives after they get out and almost everyone gets out and to their families if they can maintain these family ties through this communication. And so I'm just really glad to see this and I hope other states follow. That's great. Again, I got two chatters today. The first one, I want to strongly recommend a hilarious and kind of sad article in Wired this week, which is headlined, Dumb Money, the Very Short Rise and Long Fall of Concurrency, Former Justice Breyer's Would-Be Bitcoin Competitor. It is a wild story about how the former justice fell in with a Bulgarian blockchain scam artist who convinced him the world needed a cryptocurrency derived from judicial opinions, hence the name Concurrency. Breyer lost his life savings, as did retired fellow former justice David Souter, who Breyer lured into the scheme. But Breyer <laughs> does still have his sizable Supreme Court pension. It's like the least likely thing for Justice Souter to do ev- ever. He's like a recluse in New Hampshire. I don't know. He's really in- infatuated with crypto. And yeah, but I guess Breyer was pretty, pretty persuasive. Embedded in that truth, Emily, is the absolute <laughs> nuclear crackling <laughs> fictional narrative that David has presented us with. I know, I just love that detail of this 
fictional narrative for its implausibility. <laughs> the energy that could power a small New England town comes from that one inconsistency. The big question, will this be the last week for David's <laughs> efforts oh to God. learn Justice Breyer into retirement, or will we be stuck with this for the next, like, 10 years. No, find it's, out. well, we'll, we'll find out. My only actual chatter is the thing I've been getting most pleasure about, and maybe I've even chatted about this before, is I've been rewatching Mad Men. And my goodness, that show holds up. If oh, you that's so good to know. I've been trying to persuade my children to try it and they haven't listened to me. Now I'm going to try I, harder. No? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not watching it with my kids. I'm watching it with my girlfriend. And so she's an adult. Uh, but That's good. The, yes. <laughs> thank goodness. But it's it really is great. And it's perfect. It's a perfect spring summer watch. It's it's fun. It's funny. Really smart. It's great. Hey, so check it out. Can I add another spring summer watch for people who Please, want things that are need, funny, funny and smart? Well, this Sunday, sure, GabFest listeners gather around the television at ten thirty Eastern to watch Face the Nation. That we all know. Also funny and smart, at least well, smart. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe not funny. I mean, we know this, uh, but they should tune in just a little earlier for Sunday morning because funny and smart. Stephen Colbert. I did a piece on his time in. Lockdown, but then also, most important, his show is the first one to open, reopen on Broadway with live audience. So uh, that show's running this Sunday. So Wait, there literally you go. on Broadway? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, no, no, just his TV show. It's not, he's not performing a stage show. Colbert, the life of Colbert. Well, that's what I got It's in right. a theater that's he's on Broadway. Per- he's performing the late show with Stephen oh, Colbert the in a theater right. with okay. people. It is and actually- it's on Broadway. <laughs> oh, and it's sorry. on Broadway. I forgot. I've been there, but I still forgot. I would like to see the Stephen Colbert musical, Colbert. Anyway, listeners, you've sent us really good chatters this week. You've tweeted them to us at @slategabfest. Please keep them coming. And this one is is one close to my heart. It's from uh, Laura Forsyth. Laura and I actually, I think, corresponded a little about this as it was in the works. This is Laura Forsyth from Washington, D.C., I am chattering about a historic election last week in which Joel Castone became the first person elected to office in D.C. while currently incarcerated. He will serve as the first ever advisory neighborhood commissioner representing the residents of the D.C. jail, the Harriet Tubman Women's Shelter, and a new luxury apartment complex to provide an official voice to the district government on issues affecting the neighborhood. In a culture where we tend to silo and ignore people who are incarcerated, this is an unprecedented step for them towards more visibility, integration with the community, and an opportunity to change how we all think about incarceration. Congratulations to Commissioner Castone, as well as the four other candidates on the ballot, all of whom are in residence at the jail. You can read more about Commissioner Castone in a Washington Post article by Stephanie Lay, and see all the candidates' video platforms on the Take Action tab at NeighborsForJusticeDC.org. Awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. I, I may be wrong about this, but the D.C. jail was under a really, really draconian pandemic lockdown that I talked about, I chatted about uh, a while ago. And I, I believe that that was one of the spurs for some of the residents of the jail to move to run for this neighborhood office. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced this week by Morgan Flannery. Thank you, Morgan, sitting in for Jocelyn, because Jocelyn is gathering her resources, husbanding her strength for her amazing annual audio festival sound scene 
And you can go to soundscenefest.org. It's in D.C. this weekend. Please check out Jocelyn's other triumphant product. Oh, she Jocelyn does so many things. But Sound Scene is wonderful. And it's this great set of audio experiences. Soundscenefest.org. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio, June Thomas is managing producer, Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Actually, I won't because I'm going to be in New Mexico with my kids. And maybe John is also on vacation. Yeah, no, but Emily not, will be there. I will be here. Emily will be, Emily will be telling a... Have a single episode devoted entirely to fantasies about Justice Breyer and his post-Supreme Court life. Oh, really? That will be memorable. Bye. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Emily, set us up. So, I want to do a segment about Ordinary things in our lives that have vastly improved since childhood. We last week were being nostalgic about the things we miss. Now I want to celebrate the things that like truly have improved um, and just gotten much more varied and interesting. And I am going to start with ice cream. I know there was good ice cream when we were little. I remember loving the peppermint stick ice cream at Howard Johnson's, and I'm sure people made amazing homemade ice cream. However, now you can get like amazing ice cream at your supermarket at like the at the gas station a couple blocks from me. They carry Ben and Jerry's and Ben and Jerry's isn't even my favorite ice cream by any means anymore. I just think we're in like ice cream mecca right now. And it's true about a bunch of other things, too, like lettuce, for example, which used to be like iceberg like on frozen ice for most of the year and now is so much better. And what are the other things like that? Are you thinking of things that you as a kid particularly like, things that are good for kids or just... Well, I don't think lettuce was my favorite thing as a kid. Things that have improved since the 1970s. Yeah. Like really improved in a way that measurably Mm -hmm. creates more joy and pleasure in people's lives. Okay. Modem speeds. (laughs) There were were no modems when we were little, though. Do you remember that? There was no internet. It's not true. I mean, how little do you have to be? I'm talking... I'm talking seventh grade. Okay. Uh, fast food is much better. I don't really eat fast food, but there's the variety of things that are, are encompassed in fast food, like Chipotle, say, or Kava. Well, you're talking about fast casual as opposed fast to casual. Like, true fast food. Oh, my God. Fast casual. She's breaking out the marketing lingo. Ladder up to fast casual. Fast casual is is an invention of fast food to get people like me to go eat fast food. But I don't know what the difference between Chipotle and McDonald's is, except that... Price, maybe? A little bit of price. A little bit. They're slightly more expensive. But it's really good. And it's available. It's cheap. And by the way, if they really wanted to make it fast, they would load it into a cannon because it's perfectly shaped like oh my god uh, the burrito you could then it would be really fast food did you food. not get the Andy Rooney job at 60 minutes is <laughs> that what happened what, like, and they fired how did you they like you auditioned <laughs> you auditioned for the Andy Rooney job and they're like no <laughs> no go back to go back to sunday morning how did friends they not recognize right. your true calling <laughs> That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, 
Go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.